Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. Hope you are safe and well. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. The Senate passes the $2 trillion stimulus bill. We wait for action in the House. Meanwhile, we'll take a look at what's in it for agriculture. Coming up on the program today, we'll be talking with Ben Feldman. He's the executive director of the Farmers Market Coalition. We're going to take a look at farmers markets, direct marketing, and how that industry is being impacted by COVID-19. Michael Nepview, economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, will join us. and We'll talk about what's in the stimulus package and especially for the livestock sector. And Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, will also be joining us today with reaction to the administration's decision not to appeal the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions and what's that mean for the biodiesel industry moving forward. So all that coming up on today's program. But first, we'll start things off with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, thank you for joining us. That $2 trillion package finally passed in the Senate, and there's uh, quite a bit in there for agriculture, isn't there? Uh, yes, there is a lot for there is a lot for agriculture. Uh, there's the the $14 billion uh, replenishment of the of the uh, uh, of the CCC, uh, and then there's the $9.5 billion emergency fund. Uh, but the emergency fund is supposed to be used to compensate livestock producers, dairy producers, and the specialty crop producers that are selling locally to the farmers markets uh, and to you know to schools uh, and other local uh, local venues. Uh, but so I have to say I'm I'm afraid there's going to be a lot of competition for that money. Uh, that sounds like a lot of money, but when you start listening to the cattlemen and their troubles. Uh, as well as the dairy producers who thought they were going to have a great year, uh, and then you add in the local producers, that's a lot of people to to want some uh, money out of this pot. Well, already speculation there'll be a fourth stimulus bill. I would imagine they'll start working on that pretty quickly, if if not already. Well, yes, in theory, I think they'll be working on it over the next month now, uh, the the uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell announced last night that the Senate is not supposed to come back until April 20th. But Dan Sullivan, the senator from Alaska, said he didn't think that the Senate should go home; that they should stay there. Um, I know the senators want to get home; they want to get to their district. Um, now the House is going to come back for tomorrow and then leave again. Uh, so I don't know exactly, you know, when the Congress will actually be in Washington to act on these things, but I have a feeling they'll be they'll be working on it and there'll be people demanding stuff uh, right away. Jerry, given today's technology, why is there such a reluctance or problem with uh, members of Congress being able to vote on something from remote locations? I mean. It seems like there are several ways they could do that, and I, I guess you worry about making sure, uh, you know, it's authenticated and everything. But if nothing else, everybody could get on FaceTime, and you'd know it was them casting their vote. Why is this so? Why are the there's such a reluctance to do that? Well, it's something that's never been never been done, uh, and I can tell you, 
from having covered Congress for many years, um, there, th- there is a value in forcing these people to be on the Senate floor, on the House floor, to take their votes. There's no hiding if you're there. And so th- that really makes, you know, that makes people accountable in a, uh, in a, in a big way. Uh, in terms of the, the, the distance voting, uh, that is something new that's come up with, with modern technology. Um, Senator Portman from Ohio and Senator Durbin from Illinois tried to push the Senate to establish remote voting uh, before they were leaving now, but Senator McConnell said he wasn't interested in it. Uh, the House is talking about it too, uh, but it would be a complicated process to set it up and make sure that, that it wasn't hacked or uh, er- erroneous in some way. Yeah. I could see where you wouldn't maybe do it all the time, but I would think in times like this, in emergency situations, it would be pretty handy backup. Uh, everyone else is working remotely; they ought to be able to do it as well. Yes, I certainly, I can certainly see a reason for putting it for putting it in place, uh, and perhaps they will do it over the course of this year, uh, but not right now. Uh, now, of course, you've got this situation where, in order to pass this bill in the House the House members have to come back. Some are going to come back, some are not going to come back. Um, uh, uh, and Speaker Pelosi says the, vote is, vo- the vo- vo- vote is going to be by voice. Uh, a lot of V's there. Uh, uh, but, of course, if somebody demands a roll call, well, then they could try that. Uh, but they're talking about some kind of techniques that would that would avoid the the roll call. And if you look at the Senate vote last night, 96 to zero. Uh, the only reason it wasn't 100 is that there were several senators who were out because they were sick, including now Senator Thune from South Dakota. Um, uh, so I think there'll be tremendous pressure on the House uh, just to let this go through on a voice vote. But there will be a chance for people to to speak their minds on the on the uh, package. Also, in that bill that was passed by the Senate, rural hospitals will be eligible to for to get help with their cash flow during this situation. As all hospitals can request an advance of up to six months of their Medicare payments, uh, critical access hospitals can get an advance of up to one hundred twenty-five percent. So, I mean, as you said, there's going to be Two trillion dollars is a lot of money, but when you have to uh, spread it out as much as this is going to have to be spread out, it'll it'll go pretty quickly. Yes, uh, interesting. What, the point you made about the hospitals, uh, the National Farmers Union, in its statement on the bill, said that rural health care uh, is the most important element in this because farmers and others in rural America, of course, are concerned about getting the getting good care especially if they come down with the coronavirus and uh, uh, my concern about what's going to happen here is not so much the farmers who don't are don't you know they don't live so close together they don't work so close together but it's the farm workers the people who work in the dairies and who work in the uh, fruit and vegetable industry uh, they live closer together they work closer together and I'm afraid that we could have a real problem with that over the months to come. Yeah, critical to keep that supply chain open for sure. Jerry, thanks for being with us. Stay safe, and we'll talk again soon. Great. Always, always happy to talk to you and to your listeners.
Take care. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. So again, uh, over the next uh, few days, we'll be taking a closer look at what's in this uh, stimulus package and uh, how it may be used, especially from an agricultural standpoint. Up next, we're going to talk with the executive director of the Farmers Market Coalition. We'll take a look at uh, farmers markets and direct marketing, how that industry has been impacted by COVID-19 and how much assistance will that sector get from the stimulus bill. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. COVID-19 has brought greater scrutiny and, I hope, greater appreciation for the supply chain we have in this country, the food supply chain, and how there are very so many different links in that chain, and all those people along the way are critical to uh, keeping the food supply moving in this country and getting it to those who need it. And uh, we want to take a look at the various aspects. We've talked about a lot of different parts of that supply chain. Uh, another part of the industry is uh, uh, has been growing in recent years, farmers markets, direct marketing. Joining us now is the executive director of the Farmers Market Coalition, Ben Feldman. Ben, thanks for joining us here on Adams on Agriculture. Hey, Mike. Happy to be here. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about uh, this growing sector. The farmers markets uh, we know are becoming more and more popular, direct marketing. Uh, give us an idea of the, the size and scope of this uh, industry. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So uh, as you mentioned, farmers markets have been growing rapidly over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, we now uh, know that they account for over $2 billion in annual sales and um, nationwide USDA uh, directory lists about 8,000 farmers markets. Uh, we think there, there may be more, but that's the official number that, that most folks work with. Um, obviously, it's something that for consumers, it allows them that direct connection to agriculture. They get to buy from the person who grew their food and um, build those relationships around uh, the food that they eat. And so many consumers are looking for transparency in their food. They want to know where their food came from, how it was grown, um, and what better way to do that than uh, purchasing directly from the farmer at the farmer's market. And then, of course, for farmers, um, you know, when they go home at the end of the day after the farmer's market, they, um, they pocket that full dollar. Um, and we know that farmers who sell directly to the consumer, whether it's through farmer's markets or CSAs or other channels, um, are better able to weather financial difficulties and are um, stay in business longer. So um, there's a lot about uh, farmer's markets and direct marketing that um, is, is incredible. And obviously, that's why, um, why we do this work. How has your industry been impacted by the coronavirus? Yeah, that's been an interesting one. Um, increasingly, farmers markets are, are dealing with a range of challenges, and um, certainly a, a pandemic is one that um, many folks uh, were not necessarily uh, thinking about at the top of their mind, but um, it definitely came in quickly, and, and farmers markets uh, are making rapid adjustments in order to change the way they do business, in order to make sure that they're implementing um, the appropriate 
social distancing recommendations and other best practices in order to prevent the spread of the disease. So, you know, we're seeing markets reorganize um, their their structure, setting up drive-through farmers markets or um, reorganizing the market so that lines uh, include appropriate spacing, distancing vendors, all kinds of creative ways in order to ensure that um, they are doing their part and that markets are safe places for people to shop. Um, the, the biggest challenge we're facing right now is that uh, in many states, we still don't have clear guidance that farmers markets are essential services, uh, which is obviously creates a lot of confusion um, and ambiguity for farmers, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, you know the farmers that are looking to harvest crop right now put it in the ground months ago with an expectation that they were going to have that market. And so um, we need clear guidance. We're asking for it from the federal government. Um, we're getting it from many states, but a lot of states uh, or counties have not given that clear direction that farmers markets are essential services and should be treated uh, you know, as the same, same manner as other essential services for the purposes of preventing the spread of coronavirus. We're talking with Ben Feldman, Executive Director of the Farmers Market Coalition. Ben, is there anything in this $2 trillion stimulus package that the Senate approved last night? Any help there for farmers markets? Yeah, that's um, some of the good news that we're seeing now is that there was, uh, as we understand it, $9.5 billion included for farmers who sell um, directly to the public, whether it be farmers markets or, or other uh, forms of direct marketing. The, the challenge there, of course, is we don't know exactly how that um, will roll out, um, and we've got to get the, the House has to pass something similar, so we're not quite there yet, but this is definitely promising. Um, we're very pleased that the Senate uh, recognized that this sector is uh, an important one and one that um, is, is vital to the livelihood of um, tens of thousands of farmers, and this, uh, this package is definitely a certain amount of uh, insurance for those farmers. We have seen during this crisis a shift as restaurants are closed down, a shift from restaurants and food service to uh, retail. Has that created more demand for farmers markets as well? Yeah, so again, we're, you know, we're seeing a mixed bag across the country. Many markets are um, in a position where they are not able to open, um, and we need that clarification in order to ensure that markets can open. But at the markets um, that, that are able to remain open and that have um, implemented good social distancing practices, we're seeing strong sales. Um, so uh, in the same way that uh, demand is up in, in grocery stores as people are stocking up in order to stay hunkered down, um, we're definitely seeing that same type of demand at farmers markets, people who um, are as I mentioned, you know, people who want to have that connection to their farmer. And so for people who are um, shopping at farmer's markets, um, things haven't changed in terms of their desire to have that. And, and many folks um, feel like the open air uh, environment of the farmer's market um, with wide, you know, oftentimes with bigger spaces, um, gives them the greater ability to, to implement those types of social distancing practices. What is the challenge you face in being getting the essential services designation 
Yeah, the challenge right now that we're experiencing is that um, we're not getting that guidance at the federal level. So uh, we work with our individual state partners at the state level in order to get that. And we've got um, a growing number of states who have made that clear declaration. But um, absent that, uh, any sort of federal guidance, um, we don't have that, that clarification for the whole country, which at this stage is really what we need because the uncertainty is, um, you know, it, it's making it incredibly difficult for farmers and market operators um, to make their decisions about what they're going to be doing. And um, that uncertainty leads to added costs and it leads to um, markets that are, are closing unnecessarily. So, you know, unfortunately, we've not been able to, to get the CDC or USDA to issue such a declaration. Um, we are asking them to do so. We're asking Congress to direct, direct them to do so. Um, so far, they've continued to direct uh, folks to their state and county health departments, which, you know, at the national level is, is not adequate. We know that in recent years, a lot of schools have been purchasing uh, food from farmers markets or, or direct marketing. Uh, of course, the schools are closed, even though there are feeding programs still going on uh, as USDA is directing them. Uh, have, has that been a loss of a market for you during this, or what's that situation for farmers markets? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, you know, many farmers who sell through farmers markets also sell to, as you said earlier, restaurants and um, schools. And that's part of why this relief package is, is potentially important is that um, farmers who engage in, in direct marketing often engage in, in multiple forms of it, which does give them um, the ability to, to make changes and, and push product through one channel or another. So we're seeing farmers get incredibly creative on that front. Um, but, you know, it, it, as, you, as you point out, many of these farmers are selling through um, a, a set of the same types of channels. So, you know, they may do a quarter of their business to restaurants, a quarter to schools, um, you know, and, and then let's say they do a quarter through restaurant or through farmers markets and CSAs. Well, they've just, you know, they're in a position where between um, restaurants closing and schools closing, that's half their income. And, and even, even though they're, they're quickly adjusting to try and get more of that out through their other channels, it, you know, it, it's a real loss for them and um, has the potential to put, put farmers out of business. There are some creative efforts that are happening in some of these programs to, um, and, and hopefully the, this $9.5 billion that the Senate has included in, in their bill would be used for these types of programs where they're basically buying bulk product um, from farmers and then figuring out ways to preserve it, whether it's flash freezing it or um, other methods to preserve it, and then use those for, you know, in, in this example, uh, for school lunches going into the future. All right, Ben, thank you for the update as we continue to look at the different ways uh, food is distributed in this country. Thank you for the update. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, take care. Stay safe. Ben Feldman, Executive Director of the Farmers Market Coalition. Up next, we'll talk with Farm Bureau economist Michael Nephew. Look at this uh, stimulus bill passed by the Senate last night. What's Take a closer look at what's in it for agriculture, especially the livestock sector. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. 
Well, it looks like the House will vote tomorrow on the $2 trillion stimulus package approved last night by the Senate. We continue to take a look at that package. Joining us now is American Farm Bureau Federation economist Michael Nephew. Michael, thank you for joining us. Uh, there is quite a bit in here for agriculture, isn't there? Uh, we're, we're really helping so. So we're still going through the text a little bit at this point, but that's, uh, that's something that, you know, we're, we're excited to, to see, um, what, what ended up being for agriculture in this one. It looks like, it looks like 14 billion would go into the CCC account. Um, we've talked a lot about from the livestock sector, especially the cattle industry looking for help. Uh, what does it look like that they'll be able to get? So that is something that they're still negotiating, from my understanding. But for for the livestock sector, it, it, it absolutely is imperative that that something something happens. I know there was a, a rounds bill floating around that there was a lot of talk about the uh, potential um, basically setting in the price floor. That that was not moved forward on. I think the uh, the CCC funding is incredibly important because that's. If you think back to the um, market facilitation program payments that we got the last couple of years as a result of the, the trade damages, uh, most of that was coming out of the CC funding authority. So any chance of additional assistance moving forward would really have to come out of that kind of funding. Uh, if you break out uh, what some of that was, and I can't remember the exact statistics, I don't have them in front of me, um, a good portion of the uh, funding um, in the package is going to the office of the secretary, which is, you know, to be spent at the secretary's discretion, which we really do anticipate some of that going to the livestock and the dairy sector as well. Yeah, it does create an interesting scenario again where you're going to have, it looks like, different sectors of agriculture lobbying for, competing for that money that's been made available now to USDA. You know, uh, that's something that, you know, is always a little bit of a challenge in the agriculture sector. Uh, here at American Farm Bureau, we we really do uh, represent all of American farmers. Uh, so uh, we view it as a win whenever we can all come together and work together for American agriculture. So, you know, that $14 billion going to CCC, the Office of the Secretary was also getting, I think I pulled up about $9.5 billion. Um, it sounds like there's going to be plenty of room to be able to assist uh, those those who've been impacted by this. We're talking with Michael Nephew, economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Michael, as an economist, how do you look at, how do you assess, analyze what's happened now with this almost total shutdown of our of our economy and economies around the world? <laughs> it is just crazy times, Mike. Uh, this is unprecedented. Um, in terms of trying to forecast or predict anything, I don't think anybody really fully knows uh uh, can speak with any actual absolute certainty, but this is something where just the level of uncertainty in the economy is wrecking havoc. You think about nobody really fully knows how long this is going to go on. Uh, here I'm based out of Washington, D.C. The, the city has already shut down and ordered everybody to go home. The impact of having millions of Americans shuttered within their own home and not being able to go out and buy coffee, buy groceries uh, frequently, to go out to restaurants and go out to sporting events, it's going to take a massive toll on the U.S. economy. Uh, you already saw, I think I heard you before I came on, over 3 million uh, jobless claims jump just over, over the previous week. That's just absolutely insane for the U.S. economy. We are seeing China pick up their purchases of uh, ag products um, uh, as they fulfill, perhaps start to fulfill that phase one trade deal. 
you know that that actually caught me by surprise. I, I'll I'll fully admit that I I was skeptical of their ability even before uh, they got hit with this uh, pandemic situation in their country, and I've just been incredibly surprised by their ability to keep up what they did in terms of purchases of U.S. products. But I think that also goes to show you, in some cases, how badly they really needed some of this stuff. Uh, in particular, we I mean, I'm the livestock guy for the econ team at AFBS and cover animal proteins. And we've been talking about this ASS situation for the last two years, basically, uh, in terms of how big of an impact that's going to be on the global uh, production of animal protein and how that protein flows across the globe. China is still going to be sitting on a massive animal protein gap that they're going to have to fill. And this, I think, just goes to continue to show exactly how bad they need that product. Let's take a look at the, the livestock markets. We have a situation as consumers are being forced to switch from uh, restaurants and eating out to uh, buying at the grocery stores and, and bringing that food home. Uh, so far, those retail sales have been so strong, I guess it's kind of offset the loss in many ways of the, re- of the restaurant sector for the time being. But uh, as, as consumers stock up, they get to a point where the freezers are full and that, that slows down. And if this continues and we're not able to go out to restaurants, restaurants like we were, what happens at that point? You know, I think you you are exactly right that the, I I don't fully see that, that that pace of buying by the consumers of emptying out the grocery stores uh, continuing on that much longer. Uh, freezers are stocked; they don't have a lot of places to put it. And what's I think it's going to be a incredible um, not incredible that's that's usually a positive term, but a, a, a very difficult time uh, moving forward, especially as you have more and more people uh, applying for unemployment. Uh, you have more people out of work. You have more people who may have their salaries cut by by some percentage. And I think that's going to eventually trickle back down to uh, agricultural products as well. Um, and usually we're, we're usually very unfortunate, I mean, very fortunate in these kinds of situations because uh, food demand is relatively inelastic, but you're going to see the types of products that they're purchasing. They're going to be moving out of those luxury goods. Uh, people are going to be buying less steaks, maybe more chicken thighs, more ground beef. Um, I think I was a little bit surprised, honestly, at the front end, how quickly uh, uh, the packers and distributors were able to shift some of that production that usually goes into restaurants and food service over to the grocery stores. That, especially the first week, caused a huge hiccup, and that's why you saw the the emptying out of grocery stores is that in the U.S. we don't have a food shortage problem. We have a bit of a logistics problem in getting the food to where it really needs to be. And I think that's something that a lot of consumers didn't really fully understand. When they saw those empty grocery shelves, they're a bit more concerned than they should have been because we really don't have a food shortage situation in the U.S. Ag is still open and uh, farmers and ranchers are still out there producing the product. There's been a lot of focus on the cattle market and how it has been uh, functioning during this crisis, and and some concerns have been raised about, uh, you know, um, what's happening there as far as uh, where the money's going, who who's taking advantage, perhaps of any situation, and there's a lot of scrutiny on that. What what have you noticed? What has stood out to you? Well, that's something that, you know, AFBF has been in constant contact with folks over at USDA, uh, folks on the Hill and the administration, and, you know, making sure that we don't really, we hope and don't think anybody's actually taking advantage of the situation, but this is the kind of opportunity that could potentially present itself. Um, it has been an absolutely crazy few weeks in cattle markets. Um, one thing that stuck out to me uh, is just how quickly 
the cutout shot up. Uh, it's just been, again, just absolutely uh, huge how much it increased. Uh, from March 13th to March 24th, the choice beef cutout jumped $48 a hundredweight, 20%. Uh, it's again the you, this is much higher than what you saw back with the uh, Tyson situation and the Holcomb fire back in August. Now, to also mention is that the lives that cut out spread because uh, we don't really fully know what the packer margins at this point, uh, but we can estimate it using uh, just like I said the live to cut out spread. Uh, now that's shot up dramatically as well, but it's still not as high as it was during the Holcomb fire. So uh, some of the we didn't, haven't seen quite the drop in uh, feeder cattle prices as much as what happened back in back in August. Have you seen any indications of market manipulation? I have not seen any indications of market manipulation. Uh, at this point, it's been such a crazy buying spree to try and get everything back onto the grocery store shelves. I think we're in an area with a lot of uncertainty. Um, I personally haven't seen anything in terms of market manipulation, and that's something, again, that we've been uh, – we're confident in USDA's ability to, to really keep an eye on that, and USDA has made it very clear that they're, they're not going to let anything slide on this. There's a lot of speculation right now, a lot of discussion and debate and some controversy on how do you turn an economy like ours that's been turned off, how do you turn it back on slowly, all at once, uh, uh, you know, some here, some there, regionally around the country. What are your thoughts on that? How do you restart an economy? <laughs> uh, I, I wish I knew the answer to that one. Uh, re- restarting the economy, you know, I, I really don't envy the decision makers in this one because it's a really hard balance to strike between what is an appropriate cost to the economy while really addressing the potential risks that this pandemic could uh, inflict upon many areas of the population, particularly those in the most vulnerable state. Um, it's it's definitely going to be a challenge for, for those in charge to figure out how we get back into it. And, you know, while I don't know the best way to do it, I, I don't see them just starting the economy back up with a snap of the fingers. It's probably going to have to be a little bit more of a slower ease back into it. Uh, certain aspects of the population able to go about their days. Uh, you're still going to have uh, – it's also challenging in that it's not the entire U.S. is shutting down in such a certain way. It's a patchwork of different um, – uh, directives coming down for different cities, different states. So one area may be doing it a little bit different than the other area. So I think all of them are going to be slowly uh, going back into trying to get the economy started back up. That's yeah, just my, if I were to look into a crystal ball, guess, not not even my opinion. Yeah, yeah we're, well, we're all trying to figure this out. Interesting times for sure. Michael, thank you for being with us. Great perspective. Take care. Be safe. Yep. Thanks for having me. Michael Nephew, economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Up next, a look at the biodiesel industry. Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, will join us and get his uh, reaction to the administration not appealing that 10th Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the biofuels industry got some much-needed 
welcome news this week when the administration did not appeal the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions. Here to talk about that is the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen. Donnell, thank you for joining us. You had to be breathing a sigh of relief when the administration did not file an appeal. Well, we were. It, uh, that was a big deal for us, and as, as we've talked about all year, the uh, returning the integrity to the RFS is our number one job for 2020 as a, as a biodiesel industry, and so that was a great, great, great first step. I know it's hoped now, and many are assuming, but we don't know for sure, that EPA will use that decision for its blueprint and game plan for how it will uh, approach small refinery exemptions moving forward and the hope of course is that there'll be uh, far fewer of those granted moving forward well that would be the uh, expectation you know obviously there's there are 25 uh, uh, petitions in for the 2019 year and so the compliance time frame for that is here coming up at the end of march so we'll get a really good indication fairly quickly uh, of what this means to those uh, SREs that are in the queue, and then as well how the EPA intends to handle things moving forward. What about gallons that have been lost due to those exemptions? Is there anything being worked on that you know of for reallocation of those gallons? There's there's nothing that uh, that we're aware of at this point in time, and, and it's very unfortunate if you think about it because this these uh, SREs have been handed out. Uh, very uh, easily and simply over the last couple of years. So there's, I mean, uh, billions, uh, with a B, billions of gallons of lost demand because of these SREs. And so um, it'd be great if there's an opportunity for the EPA to see a way to, over a period of time, to restore that. Obviously, uh, our friends in the oil and gas industry aren't going to be excited about that proposal either. We're talking with Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. Donnell, we we're together early in the year for your uh, your annual meeting, and you talked about a very aggressive uh, plan moving forward for the biodiesel industry, lar- based largely on uh, having the tax credit back for biodiesel. And now, finally, you've got uh, hopefully some uh, assurance on the SRE situation. Give us an overview of where the industry is at now. We know the ethanol industry is really struggling. What about the biodiesel industry? Well, from from the conversations I've had with our members over the last uh, week or 10 days, uh, you know, the biggest challenge is the health concerns for all of their staff and employees. But uh, operationally, things are hanging in there for the biodiesel industry, and I think the demand is there. Obviously, there's not as many cars uh, on the road as people are staying at home, but there's a lot of truck and uh, heavy-duty traffic going on. And, of course, we're plugging right into uh, planting season for our farmers, and so I think the demand is still very strong for diesel and biodiesel. Yeah, your market a little different. Uh, You're not as dependent on uh, motorists, uh, you know, going out on the road and filling up their gas tanks. Uh, Yours is a little different market. You're impacted some, but not quite as much by the shutdown as far as people not moving around or traveling as much. Yeah, we're we're very different. As you know, there's not a lot of light-duty diesels. Uh, that's beginning to change. There's more more of the OEMs are offering options. Uh, GM is kind of taking the lead on that, but uh, we just don't see as much of that. So when, when cars and small pickups are, are sitting idle, that's not uh, that's not to the detriment of demand for diesel and and biodiesel. So 
Um, and obviously all of our goods are moving and needing to move, especially during this trying time. And so the pressures is on for uh, diesel and biodiesel to be available at uh, all the locations. We know, and farmers are happy about this, diesel prices, for the most part, are down as we head to spring planting time. Now, in the ethanol industry, we talk about lower gas prices at the pump. While we enjoy it as motorists, that's often not good for the ethanol industry uh, as far as a pricing and financial situation. What about lower diesel prices? How does that impact the biodiesel industry? Well, very, very similarly, um, you know, from a selfish standpoint, I mean, higher diesel prices are better for biodiesel. But, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's all a competition for the demand in that same space. And so we do have the advantage for biodiesel and renewable diesel. You know, some of the programs that are out there incentivizing car- decarbonization of transportation fuels, you know, the California LCFS, LCFS is kind of that shining star. So that creates some added value for biodiesel over uh, petroleum diesel. Are you seeing the impact of the biodiesel tax credit being back in place? Because I know that was a big part of your optimism about future growth. Have you seen that impact or has COVID-19 kind of slowed that momentum as well? Well, no, I think there's some pretty solid momentum. Uh, I mean, our producer members have not you know, seen the checks yet, uh, the process the IRS laid out. Um, didn't really get underway until the middle of February. And so uh, I'm anticipating that uh, our, our producer members will start seeing those checks here in the next couple of weeks. So you know, the money hasn't shown up, but I think the uh, the enthusiasm for what the, what it means to the industry is permeating not only among our biodiesel producers, but our downstream blending partners as well. And so I think things are uh, are still remaining pretty strong for us. All right. So you have the tax credit. You have hopefully some coming certainty on uh, small refinery exemptions. So as you look to this year, then what are your priorities as an industry? Well, this COVID-19 is definitely challenging uh, from the standpoint of just business certainty again. I've talked to you a lot about our need as an industry to have certainty, and and we're kind of getting to that point with the tax credit now with the RFS being a little more solid and our trade challenges kind of lining up fairly nicely as well. So we just need uh, everybody to get back into, into work and, and the normal functions that uh, create the demand for transportation fuels like we need them to. Yeah, we all look forward to a return to normalcy, don't we? Donnell, thank you so much. Be safe, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, Mike, thank you. You too. Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. All right, coming up tomorrow, we'll continue to look at this uh, Stimulus bill, as we expect the House to be voting on it tomorrow, take a further look at what's in there for agriculture and how it can help various sectors of agriculture as well as the overall economy. Hope you will join us right here on AOA. Be safe, everyone.